0: in the ministry. Now as we continue in our series, Relationship Not Rules, we come to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Remember this is the second commandment that revolves around our relationship with each other. The first four revolved around our relationship with God and how we respond to God so often determines how we relate to one another. And if you and I don't learn to have a respect for the Lord, chances are we will not respect life. Now, this is a call for you and I to cherish life because murder is the ultimate robber of relationship. It's not based on rules. It's based on a relationship. And when you and I kill, we end up terminating the greatest treasure that we have our relationships with each other, and we hurt the heart of God the Father. You see, we have cultivated in our country today a culture of killing. Every year, almost a million babies are aborted. From the very beginning of life, what we're saying to our kids is life is no longer sacred. It's dispensable. It's based on your convenience, not on Jesus Christ and not on a conviction. You and I have a country today that promotes through our movies murder and mayhem. We let our kids play video games where they score points by killing people. We're cultivating a culture of death, not a culture of life. You see, the further a culture moves away from Jesus Christ, the further they will move away from the things that Christ cherishes, and one of those is a love for life. You see, what we discover here is this is not just about you and I not killing people. There's a greater message, and the message is this. It's not enough for us not just to kill people, but you and I have got to be lovers of life. And what we discover when it comes to murder here is that murder is more than just the actions. It's also the attitudes. Turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter twenty verse 13. Exodus twenty thirteen, You must not murder. Pretty simple, right? I mean, do we really need to preach on this? Apparently we do because we have a culture of death, as I mentioned. Now, one of the things that you and I need to understand is in order to fully understand the passage, we need to understand not only what it means, but what it doesn't mean. And there are people today that will take Scripture out of context. And there will be people today that will say, well, this means that we shouldn't kill animals. But just a few verses later in Exodus 20, 24, God gives instructions for the sacrifice of animals. So it's obviously not talking about that kind of killing. There are some people that will say, well, it it's goes against capital punishment. But prior to the Mosaic law, which is what we're dealing with here, In Genesis 9 6, it says this If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. So it's not talking about capital punishment. And you and I here have to recognize the reason that's given. Do you notice the reason? The valuable life, the sanctity of life is because we are created in the image of God. Today, we're saying our worth is based on what we can do. But it's not based on what we can do. It's based on what God did when he created us, when he knit us together in our mother's womb. Let me ask you this question. As you look at people, do you see them as people that are image bearers of God, created by the Master? I've had a lot of opportunity over the last couple of days as I've traveled to be able to see thousands of people just walking back and forth in airports, all different sizes, all different colors, all different nationalities, but they've all got one thing in common. They all are image bearers of God. They were created in his image. And that image gets corrupted through the things that you and I involve our lives in, the sin. But many of us today, we're not treasuring people, we're trashing people. Why? Because we're trying to base their worth on what they can do instead of the word of God. We're not seeing people as created in the image of God. There are some people that will say, well, then this goes against self-defense. If I were to defend myself or my home when somebody maybe attacked me. But here's what it says, just two chapters over in Exodus 22:2. If a thief is caught in the act of breaking into a house and is struck and killed in the process, the person who killed the thief is not guilty of murder. Some will say, then it goes against war. But you and I need to understand, as, as horrible as war is, there are some things that are worse than war. And one of those is the loss of freedom. You and I need to recognize that David, King David, was constantly at war with the enemies of God. And God didn't have a problem with him being at war. There was one time in David's life where God had a problem when it came to war. and It was actually a time when David didn't even show up to war. It was a time when kings went out in the spring to fight the battles. But David decided to stay home and engage himself in sexual sin. And to cover it up, He killed an innocent man on the battlefield. He had him murdered, Uriah the Hittite. And God confronted David through the prophet. And there were serious consequences for that. So if it doesn't involve those things, what is God talking about when he says to you and I that that we should not murder? He's talking about intentional killing. What we call in our country homicide. Do you realize in America... Every year, thousands of people are killed in cold blood. So much so that every hour of every day in this country, two to three Americans' lives are taken. That's the culture in which we're living. And there's lots of people that will say to me, the Bible doesn't apply to my life today. Thou shalt not kill. And what do we see? A whole culture of murder. But you see, it's not just homicide, it's suicide. Do you realize that in the United States, every year, 400,000 people try to take their life? 30,000 people succeed in taking their life. And of those 30,000, 5,000 are teenagers. That's the culture that we have today. Every year, 5,000 teenagers decide life is not worth living. They don't love life. Now, there's a ministry that Chris Kniss is involved with because we're starting to see more and more veterans taking their lives in this country. And it's called Mission 22 because every day, 22 veterans, men and women that fought for the freedom of this country, take their life. And it's a ministry that reaches out to try to bring the hope and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'd like more information on that, just get a hold of me and I'll get you in contact with Chris and and how you can be a part of investing and bringing the Lord and bringing life into the lives of people who feel like there's no point living. Now many of you are aware that uh, a week ago I hopped on a plane and I quickly flew over to England where my dad lives to surprise him for his 80th birthday. Now, my brother, who I haven't seen for almost 15 years, I got him to fly in, and we met in London, went up to my dad's house, knocked on his door, and surprised him for his 80th birthday. Fortunately, he didn't have a heart attack. <laughs> that was our biggest worry. But why would I do that? Because when you love life, you love the people in your life. And it shows in the time and the talents, the treasures that you invest in. But do you realize that the first time, when I first got back to the States, when I first came to back to America... It's only gone six days. The very first ministry call I got, barely even back, was for a young guy that had tried to take his life. Suicide's not just some issue that's occurring in New York City. It's right here in our valley. And there are people today that feel hopeless. Why? Because John 10.10 says that Satan came to kill, steal, and destroy And we have an enemy that wants to whisper lies into our life. The problem is many of us are listening to the lies of Lucifer instead of listening to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the lies that Satan wants to whisper in your life. Your life's not worth living. You're not worth anything. You can end it all. That's the biggest lie of all. Because let me tell you, for the family that's left to pick up the pieces, suicide doesn't end anything for them. It begins The pain and the guilt. Because for years following, they start asking themselves the question, how did we not see this? Maybe we could have done this. Maybe we could have done that. And they live in the guilt of the what if. And they take on all of that and they live in the pain. And see, many of us today, we're listening to those lies instead of listening to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? He said, you're so valuable to me that I'm willing to lay down my life so that you can have life. And some of us today, we're trying to find our worth in our work. We're trying to find our worth in, in, in what other kids would say about us. We're trying to find our worth in, in, in how much is in our bank account or the kind of house or the person we're dating. We're trying to gain our worth from everything other than the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're so worth it that I'm willing to die for you. But see, we so quickly dismiss the love of the Lord, don't we? And we so readily listen to the lies of the enemy. We've got to start getting serious in our country and in our church when it comes to mental health issues. There are people today that are struggling with depression because of uh, the things that are going on, external things around them, but there's people that are struggling because of chemical things that are going on within them. But regardless of what's driving that, you and I need to know that it's only the grace of God. It is the hope that we hold on to. And that hope is only found in him. Because it's not found in our health. That can fail. It's not found in our homes. They can be taken away. It is not found in our job or our work or our looks or what other people say. All of that stuff really doesn't matter. It comes down to what does God say about you. But you see... I don't know why, but we so struggle in our country, and especially in the church when it comes to mental health issues, because we've bought into this lie today that we're supposed to be happy all the time. Now, Christians are supposed to experience joy, but joy is based in Jesus. Happiness is based on your happenings, and there's going to be times where what's happening in your life is not very happy, and we've got to come to grips with that. But but we don't know how to deal with mental health issues, and it's this stigma. I mean, somehow it is okay if you break your leg. We can handle that. But if something is broken in your head or in your heart, we don't know what to do. And we just want to tell people to get on with it. Just think cheery thoughts and you'll be fine. Would we say that to someone with a broken leg? Just think cheery thoughts and hop along. You'll be fine. No, we wouldn't do that, would we? We we would look at that as cruel and inhumane and insensitive. And many of us today, that's what we're doing. We would tell that person immediately that they needed to go to the hospital, that they needed to have that leg set, and that they needed a pair of crutches so that they could take the weight off of that leg. But what are those crutches? And see, there's so many people today that will not get help when they're going through depression because there's this stigma on them. And I'm not going to do this, but if I were to ask us to raise our hands, every one of us that's ever had discouragement or depression in our life, you'd be surprised. But see, the enemy wants you to think you're the only one. And here's what you need to understand today. If you're at a place of darkness and depression, you're not alone. There are a lot of people who have walked that path with you. Read your Bible, there's prophets that laid under trees and said, it's not worth living anymore, I just want to die. None of us are immune. It's not a lack of faith in our life. It's a fight that we face. And you and I have got to be at a place where we're willing to admit, and for some of you today, you're here, you're listening online, or you're here present, and you're having those thoughts, my life is worthless, I'm not worth living. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell somebody. I want you to share that. I want you to get the help that you desperately need because all of us need that help. And there is absolutely no shame. There's no shame in a broken leg. There's no shame in a broken heart or a broken head. But you see, it's not just homicide and suicide. It is also infanticide. And as I mentioned a little bit ago in the message We abort almost a million babies every year in this country. Now, this has been going on since 1973, pretty much my whole life. Think about that. For 40 years, a million babies every year, we're talking about 40 million people. That's almost 15% of our current population in America. Have you ever stopped to consider the economic cost? Think of all the houses that are no longer being built. Think of all the pairs of shoes. Now, statistically, it's not 40 million because half of them are women, and we know they tend to have at least two pairs of shoes, right, ladies? But think about that for a moment, just the economic cost. See, what's happened in our nation is we're constantly talking about the economy. We're constantly worried about the economy, And maybe we need to do this and maybe we need to do that. Maybe what we need to do is stop killing people that would grow up to actually participate in the economy. But no one wants to admit that. No one wants to talk about that. But it's not just the economic cost, it's the emotional cost. And think about the emotional cost on our children because what we're saying to them is, your choice is more important than someone else's life. And many, not all, but many abortions revolve around convenience. Because having this baby right now is just not convenient. It's not convenient for my life. Because we've become a society of self and we're dying in the sin of selfishness today. Now I want you to understand, those of you that have gone through and, and maybe you've, you've been involved in abortion. Maybe as a doctor. Maybe as as a woman who, who listened to the lies of the culture and said it's your body, you can do whatever you want. And you bought into that belief of what our culture says today that to the dilemma of unwanted pregnancies, the answer to that dilemma is death. I'm telling you, the answer is not death, it's life. The answer is not abortion, it's adoption. And you and I need to understand that if we've been engaged in that way, and some of you have, and there's incredible guilt and shame, and you've never told anybody else. Nobody else knows. The children that you have in your home now, they don't know. But God knows. And what you need to understand today is there can be forgiveness. And, and you and I in the church, we have got to be sensitive. We can hate sin, but not sinners. And we've got to be sensitive that that we don't just become angry. I think what's happened with the abortion debate today is we've just gotten tired in the church. We're like, well, it doesn't matter. Seriously, it doesn't matter to you that a million babies are aborted every year. It matters. But we've got to come alongside and we've got to bring answers because we know Jesus and we have the answers because we know the Almighty. Now, right now, some of us are spiritually smug, sitting there thinking to ourselves, well, I'm doing good. Finally got a commandment that I've, I've, I've got 100% down. I haven't killed anyone, at least not yet. But Jesus here in a moment is going to take this commandment to a whole other level. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 21. Matthew 5:21 it's here that Jesus reveals to us that murder is not just about the action but it's about the attitude. Matthew 5:21 you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. And if you commit murder you are subject to judgment, but i say if you are even angry with someone you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Now jump down to verse 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you in this way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both evil and good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's here that Jesus reveals the reason for murder. And he says it's undealt with anger in our lives. He's revealing to you and I the action, or excuse me, the attitude behind the action. Or we could say it's the hand behind the heart. Now we have become obsessed with the objects of murder in our culture and what we're missing today is the real motive for murder. What we're focused on is more what's in the hand than what's in the heart. But Jesus said to you and I that our problem of death in our culture is the result of what's going on in our hearts. Now, the media today want you to believe that the problem is just guns. And I'm not here to debate guns. I am here to talk about God. And what Jesus said to you and I is it's not so much a gun problem as it is a heart problem. So I thought just to put that to the test and to see if what Jesus says is true, I thought what would be really good is if I would bring a murder weapon to church this morning. And so that's what I did. And three people just woke up and everyone else has got at least one eye on the preacher. It's a great way to have a captive audience. So here's the murder weapon I brought. It's the original murder weapon. This is possibly the weapon that Cain used to kill Abel. We don't know, but it's possible. This is a murdering rock. Now, for some of you, you're not very worried right now. I can see it in your face, but you need to be because this is a murder weapon. This is an object of murder. And what I'm going to do is very carefully take it And very carefully place it over here on its own and hope that it doesn't roll over and murder anybody during the rest of the sermon. Now we laugh at that. Why? Because right now we're engaged intellectually, not just emotionally. And when you and I think rationally, we recognize that the rock's not going to kill us. See, in order for that rock to murder someone in here right now, it would have to be what? In my hand. Can I ask, what is my hand connected to? My head. And what's my head connected to? My heart. And what I love about Jesus and his teaching is rather than focus on the external, he goes right to the heart, right to the root of the problem. And he says to you and I, if we don't deal with what's in the heart, we'll never ever deal with the hurt and the hate in this life. Because what the media want you to believe is if we would just ban guns, the object, let's just get rid of the object. Can I ask you, what if we banned all the rocks on the planet? What kind of a planet would we have? You see, here's the reality that we've got to come to grips with in our culture it is a heart issue. And that's what we have to deal with. Today, we're trying to deal with hate without dealing with the heart. And it's a human condition, the heart. And Jesus here says that this death is a progressive process in people's lives. And it starts with anger, unchecked emotion. And you notice here that he says the first stage is the raka stage, or what we would, in our modern language, call telling somebody you're an idiot. And for most of us in this room, we'd say, well, that's really not that big a deal. I think I did it maybe two or three times already this week. I think if we were honest for a moment, every one of us could say at some point in our life, we have called somebody an idiot. Why? Well, there was that one guy when he saw me coming, waited till I was almost on him and then pulled out in front of me, idiot, and then proceeded to go 40 miles an hour in a 65, idiot, idiot. And then he wouldn't get out of my way. How many times have we in our lives called somebody an idiot? But see, most of us, we don't see that as a big deal. Jesus did. Why? Because it reveals what's really going on in the heart. And you see, what you and I need to understand is at this stage, we're wounding people with our words. But we think it's okay because we haven't physically murdered anybody yet. But if we don't deal with this, we will. We will start to hurt and hate people around us. How many of us today are what I call mouth murderers? And we sit in church and we feel spiritually smug because we haven't killed anybody. But yet, we're wounding people every day with our words. We're killing joy in our families. We're ruining relationships. We're ruining reputations. We're murdering our marriages and yet we're saying, yep, I'm, I'm good with the sixth command. I haven't killed anybody. So why have we got such a relational wreck around us? And you notice what Jesus says here. The answer to this is Accountability. Because he says at this early stage where most of us think it's no big deal, we're to go and present ourselves to the court. What court is he talking about? The Sanhedrin. That means for you and I today, we need to talk to spiritual leaders about what's really going on in our hearts. Now how many of us, if we're honest, in those times where where our heart flares up and we realize there's a little hate in there, and we call somebody an idiot and we lose it and we wound people with our words. How many of us, the first thing we do is call our life group leader and say, man, I've got to talk to you about what's really going on in my heart. We, we don't live out the scripture. Because we really don't see it as a big deal. And so we, we breeze right on through. Why is it that we need accountability in our lives? Because you and I need to understand that what goes in our heart doesn't just affect us. It infects the people around us. Now, we have a culture today that primarily, our primary way of dealing with hatred is punishment. And so what we do is when people unchecked, kill people, those sorts of things, we just put them in prison. But what if we would be proactive? What if we would start talking to our kids about how to process and manage the things that are going on in their hearts? And the greatest way as a parent to be proactive in your kids' lives is not just to mouth that they need to handle anger in their life and deal with that emotion, but for us to model it so they can actually see what that looks like. Because there's going to be times in your life that you will be angry and there are going to be times you need to be angry. When I see a woman being abused, when I see children being abused, it makes me angry. And I should be angry. Jesus would be angry about that. When Jesus walked into the temple and they'd taken it from a place of prayer to a place of profit, and it was all about money, Jesus got angry. What did he do? He restored it back to the way it should be. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves today, is my anger being dealt with in a way that's constructive or destructive? Because here's the thing with anger. Anger is a protest. Now, some of you have little kids, and you recognize there's things that make them angry. What you haven't figured out is they're protesting, and you need to help them to process through that protest so that it is constructive and not destructive. I don't know why, but any time when we would take our little kids to the grocery store, it was like every single checkout was three miles long. That's how it feels when you're three feet high. And I have no idea why they do this. I think it's just to punish parents, but they put every candy bar and sugar thing they can think of on the display while you're waiting to check out. And so here you've got this little kid standing in a three-mile line, waiting for three days and looking at sugar. And what do you think they're going to want? Mom, can I have a candy bar? No. No. Because you're a good mom, right? And you recognize it's close to lunch and all those things. And, and so you say, no. And what do they do? But I want one. Can't have one. And they throw themselves down and have a fit. Why does that happen? It's a protest. Some of you are dealing with little kids that are protesting going to bed. I don't want to sleep. I want to stay up. I want to be engaged in whatever it is that you're doing. I have no idea what it is I want to stay up for. I just want to stay up. Right? And if you and I don't teach them how to process through these times in their life where where they're protesting, guess what? When you grow up, there's things that you protest. You don't ever grow out of that stage. There's going to be times you want things. Maybe they're not good for you and you need to tell yourself no. See, most of us don't do that. Why? Because we didn't have a parent that helped us to process through that stuff. Some of you are going to be in a marriage where there's going to be some things that you don't like, and I just did a wedding last night, 8 o'clock after I preached, and here's this wonderful couple, and they're in love, and everything's wonderful, right? And we talk about marriage as the alarm clock. It'll wake them up. There's going to be some problems in that marriage at some point, and her heart's going to get hurt, and she's going to want to protest. Here's the question. Will it be constructive or destructive? That determines what kind of a marriage they're going to have. Jesus now talks to you and I about the second stage, and if you and I are accountable to spiritual leaders, people of maturity in our life, then you and I will breeze right through this, and we'll say it's no big deal wounding people with our words, and we'll move to the fool stage. And many of us think the fool stage is no different than the idiot stage, but if you read your Bible, what you'll discover here is there's a difference in accountability No longer are we accountable to man, to spiritual leaders, we are now accountable to God because Scripture says here we're in the danger of the fires of hell. Sounds a little bit serious, doesn't it? If you think that just breezing through the idiot stage and wounding people with your words isn't very serious, you find yourself at the stage where you're in danger of the fires of hell. That should cause you to back up for a moment and slow down the bus. Now, why would Jesus say to you and I that we're heading for the same place of destruction that is reserved for Satan? Because what is Satan's mission? Kill, steal, and destroy. At this point in our lives, we're no longer living for the Savior. We're now living for Satan. We are promoting his plan of murder and mayhem. And how many of us in the church that call ourselves good Christians are living out Satan's plan more than we're living for the Savior today. Because we're wrecking relationships. So what's the answer to this? Well, the first is, are you accountable to anybody? Let me ask you a question. Who do you call? Who is the spiritual leader in your life that you confess to when you find your heart flaring up and there's that hate? And if you can't answer that right now, you don't have anybody You shouldn't have to search and go, well, I could call. You don't call. And you and I have to make ourselves accountable. The problem is we want to live for self today and not the Savior, and therefore we don't want to be accountable in the church. But we need, if we're going to be Christian community and we're going to change the world for Jesus Christ, we've got to deal with our heart because we can't deal with the hate out there while it's in here. Secondly, we've got to start taking personal responsibility for our anger. What most of us do is play the blame game. We say this, you make me so angry. But Jesus said, it's in here. That's where the anger's at. And what we just did is we deflected and we tried to play the blame game by putting it on somebody else. Now imagine for a moment, I had a rose and a skunk. And I put equal pressure on them, and I just started to squeeze them both as hard as I could. What would happen? They'd both release a scent. One would be foul, the other fragrant. Now, did I create the smell? No. I just put pressure on them, and what was in them came out. The question that we've got to ask ourselves today is this. When people pressure our heart, what scent comes out? Is it pleasant or is it poisonous? James, in chapter 4 of the book of James, reveals that one of the reasons that we fight and kill is because we covet things that people have more than we care for Jesus Christ. And so what happens is we become... These people who put the priority on possessions and not on people. I think one of the reasons that the millennial generation has had such a shift away from the old culture is because they're tired of watching the same thing over and over, where we tell them you need to study hard, get a good job, make a lot of money, buy, 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 and then die. And they're like, there's got to be more to life than that. And so they're moving away, and we're like, well, what's wrong with that? We're not here to consume. We're here to share Jesus Christ. And and what's happened for many of us is we're placing the priority on possessions today instead of people. And so we look around, and there's always going to be someone that has more than what you have, and you start coveting what they have. And pretty soon what motivates you is greed, not God. You become motivated by jealousy, not Jesus Christ. You become a person that is caught up being motivated by bitterness over what you don't have instead of the Bible. And many of us today, that's what's motivating. These sins are motivating us, and we're making it about stuff instead of souls. What happens to you and I when we become people that are more motivated by possessions than we are by people? what happens is we become lust-based people instead of love-based people. And lust-based is always about getting. Love-based is always about giving. And I think a millennial generation have rejected the old order, so to speak, because they're like, I don't want to live a lust-based life. I want to live a love-based life. I want my life to matter. And, And at some point in this culture, what's killing us in America is we're making it about stuff and not about souls. You see, you and I have to come to a place in our life where we deal with what's really going on in our heart. Jesus reveals the reason, and as long as we blame it on external things, we'll never deal with what's in our heart, and we'll never heal the hate. But Jesus here reminds us, not just of of the reason for murder, but the results of murder. And you notice that the reason for murder is unchecked anger. The results of murder... unacceptable worship. And this should grab every single Christian's attention because we were created for worship. And what God says here is if you think and you remind yourself of someone that has an issue with you, stop what you're doing in church, leave and go deal with that. God's saying that relationship and restoring relationship is more important than riches And you and I seem to think today that we can come into the church and we can worship God while we've got this relational wreckage going on. And we just ignore it. Why? Because we have bought into compartmentalized Christianity where it's easier just to compartmentalize our sin instead of actually confessing our sin and getting real with people. You see... It's here that you and I need to recognize that it's not just if you have an issue with someone, but even if you don't, but they've got a problem with you. And most of us today, we wouldn't address that. This is the only place in all of my study of Scripture where I have found where it is okay for you to leave church early. It's the only time to deal with relational brokenness. Now, in America... The number one reason why we leave church early is because we want to beat the Baptists to the buffet. It's called a restaurant, right? We will leave early. If the sermon goes a little long, we're like, oh, we'll have to get in line and wait. We don't want to wait for food, so let's just skip out a little early. Here's where we're at as a culture in the church. We will leave church early to get to a restaurant, but not to restore relationship. What does that tell us about ourselves as a culture in the church? Food's more important than family. Or feel-good, filling my belly, is more important. And, and let me ask you this question. How long will that meal last? Just a few hours, and it's gone. All the benefits has gone. But what about a restored relationship? And for some of you, here's the hard part. For some of you, you actually probably right now need to just get up and leave. But we won't do that. Why? Because, well, people will look at me. And again, we're more worried about the way people will think of us because we've bought into religion and not relationship. Religion is concerned with looking good, relationship is concerned with loving God. And if we love God, we're not worried about the way we look, we worry about the broken relationships. And I want you to notice here that peacemaking is personal. Jesus moves from the plural to the singular. And what he's saying here is this is a message for me, not for the masses. What most of us do with this passage of peacemaking is we go, oh man, this would be a great sermon for Betty. Betty desperately needs to hear this. And what I'm going to do is, is hopefully they record it and I'm going to sneak it onto Facebook and tag her in it. Because she really needs to deal with this in her life. And what we do is we dismiss it for ourselves, right? It's not a message for the masses. It is a message for me personally. How much does God care about his family? So much so that when there's fighting in his family, he says to us, stop worshiping. Now, how big a deal is worship? It is our number one priority. We were created to worship God. And what God's saying here is stop doing your number one priority and restore that relationship. Let me ask you, are your relationships more important to you than your riches? Because it's here that you and I are reminded that, an internal attitude is more important than external offerings. It's here that we see how we rationalize murder. Notice what the Pharisees do with this. They switch it around and they change the Bible to fit their behavior. And what they come up with and what they're teaching, and think about this this is the preachers of Christ's day are teaching God's people love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Is that biblical? No. You see, what we're doing today is the exact same thing. We are basing our beliefs on our behavior and not on the Bible. Your belief should drive your behavior. And therefore, your belief should be based on the Bible. But most of us were like, here's how I want to live my life. This is my behavior. Therefore, I'm going to let my behavior dictate my belief. I'm going to create a belief system that fits Allowing me to do what I want to do. And so what they did is they loved the people they liked and hated the people they didn't. Let me ask you, are we any different in the church? We have our little cliques. Are there people that you hate? Let me ask you this, are there people that you don't like? It's, it's so easy for us to just limit our love to the people that we like. That's basically what they did. They had a limited love let me ask you, what if Jesus had died for the people he liked instead of the ones he loved? And you and I, if we've got to face these serious questions in the church today because I'm, I'm asking myself this question. What message in the church are we broadcasting today? Is it a message of hope or a message of hate? Because when I listen to a lot of fundamental Christians today, we seem to be more concerned with preserving our way of life than promoting the Lord of life. We have gotten so caught up trying to save a country and trying to save our idea of our culture that we have become Christians that are primarily concerned with saving our culture instead of seeing people saved by Jesus Christ. And so what happens? As long as you fit into my culture, as long as you're the right color, as long as you speak the right language, as long as you have the same behaviors that fit with me, I'll like you. But if you don't, I'm not going to love you. Church, that's not Christianity. And we cannot call ourselves the church and live that way and claim to be Christians, Christ followers. You see, it's here that you and I are reminded, lastly, of the response to murder. And there's only one right response, and it's called relentless love where you and I just relentlessly love people. We lavishly love people. And what we discover about love is that love is expressive, first of all. It's not just a principle, it's a practice. When the lawyer came and he wanted to talk to Jesus about his neighbor in the abstract, Jesus taught him through action. The good Samaritan was the one who actually loved on the man. He didn't have loving thoughts towards him. He actually stopped and you and I have to come to a place where we ask ourselves today, how expressive is my love? Because most of us today, we're limiting our love. That's exactly what the priest did. He walked by and he said, it's a Samaritan. I don't deal with Samaritans. Let me ask us a tough question. If we had a Muslim community in our culture here in Scottsbluff, Bluff, would we reach out and love them? If there was a refugee camp, Would we show up and feed and water those people? Would we love them? Let me ask you this question. Where do you think Christ would be? Because here's how expressive Christ's love was. He went and ate with the sinners and tax collectors. And the church accused him of not loving God they were they were comfortable just to isolate themselves from people that desperately needed love why do people need love today because out there there's a whole bunch of people that are about to take their life because they don't know what love really looks like and we've got the light of lord jesus christ love is expressive who are you expressing love to secondly not only is love expressive it's expensive It's going to cost you. But let me tell you something. Hate will cost you far more. And some of us have bought into that. Our heart has been hurt, and we've decided to invest in hate because we think it will make us feel good. Let me tell you, it is an empty, empty, bottomless bank. You can put everything you want into hate. It's a black hole. But when you and I invest in love, on the front end, love costs us, but I'm going to tell you, on the back end, it pays dividends. And there are some of us today, we are investing in an empty black hole instead of investing in love that will pay dividends for generations. But you see, it's not just expressive and expansive. Or expensive, it's expansive. And you and I here need to recognize that we cannot afford to limit our love. What did Jesus say here? God calls the sunshine to fall on sinners and saints alike. God calls the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. What would that be like if God only reserved the rain and the sunshine for perfect people? How many of us would be living in darkness and dying of thirst today? Isn't that an amazing thought that God is willing to be gracious? And if we're going to follow God, then we've got to stop being grabbers of grace and start becoming givers of grace. And there are people in your life that you're like, they don't deserve the sunshine. They don't deserve the rain. I'm not going to bring any light into their life. They need to live in the darkness. They need to experience the pain that I've experienced. But what does God say? Extend grace to them. And what happens when you and I become givers of grace? All of a sudden, people get to see the real, true heart of God. So let me ask you this question. How much do you love life? And some of you are saying, Well, I haven't killed anybody yet. But here's the question It's not about you and I being content with just being Christians that don't kill people. Who have you lavishly loved? Where are you loving life to the point where you're investing in those people? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And man, this is hard stuff in the culture in which we live. We have a whole country that's divided. And part of why we're divided is is because we're, we're wanting to live based on our wants and our belief and our idea of community. But God, you've told us in your word what it really looks like for us to be the church. And so I just pray that you would help us to love you, to love life, and to love not just the people you've put in our life, but the people that we need to go involve ourselves in their life we pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's be dismissed.